0: Welcome to the Business Bookshelf podcast. Today, our guest is Abdullah Varacha. Abdullah is globally recognized for his talks on strategy, competitiveness, change, and global trends, and for his ability to design and facilitate strategy discussions amongst teams, executives, and boards. Today, I talk to Abdullah about his new book, Disruption Amplified Reset, Rewire, Reimagine Everything. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Business Bookshelf Podcast. I'm your host, Lance Petler. Like you, I'm a lifetime learner and find books one of the best ways to do this. The purpose of this podcast, then, is to interview authors of new business books, get insights into their thinking, lives, and businesses all in a light friendly manner. As I said in the introduction, today I'm speaking to Abdullah Varacha. Here's a little bit more about Abdullah. He currently serves as the Chief Executive Officer of the Strategists and also is a faculty member and head of the India-African Business Network at the Gordon Institute of Business Science. Abdullah is the author of Disruption Amplified, Reset, Rewire, Reimagine Everything. Unlock key insights revealed in Disruption Amplified that will inspire your own rethinking during this remarkable and transformative time and step boldly into a new tomorrow. Disruption Amplified is published by Tracy McDonald Publishers. So welcome to the podcast, Abdullah. Thank you, Lance. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you and to be with your listeners. Uh, Abdullah, where am I speaking to you from today?
1: So I'm sitting in the rainy yet sunny part of Johannesburg in the southern part of South Africa. Uh, I've uh, I travel a huge amount, but this year I've been locked down.
0: Uh, no, no, I haven't had an aeroplane in ten months. I'm yearning for one, but that's where I am. I'm in Johannesburg. <laughs> uh, someone on LinkedIn that I saw yesterday posted a picture of the breakfast he receives in business class. And he said he was so misses that, that, that breakfast in the business class seat. <laughs> <laughs> but I can understand hey, that. <laughs> uh, so Abdilla, can before we get on to your great book, um, could you give us a bit of an overview of your career uh, leading up to the forming of the strategist company? Sure. So I think I've also
1: had, uh, in, in in light of the book, a very disruptive career. I started my career as a lawyer back in the day, uh, practiced law for a bit, and then realized it's not really something I want to do. Uh, I went down the path of becoming a lawyer after having watched, uh, you know, the typical series, uh, the suits look cool, uh, the buildings look <laughs> cool, the people look cool, the coffee looked very interesting, uh, but then realized it's not really a career path I want to go down. I then went uh, into a strategy firm, a consulting firm with a with a partner who led it uh, and uh, three of us started that. Uh, it grew quite extensively. We did quite a bit of work in emerging markets. Mm. And then at the same time, I taught at the business school, Gibbs. And so I've been teaching there since 2007. <clears throat> I then uh, went into banking. I joined Rand Merchant Bank, uh, playing a role there, uh, but then came back uh, into where I am today. I run a strategy consulting firm. I uh, teach at Gibbs and I look after the Harvard program on behalf of the school. And then I sit on a number of boards of different companies uh, as a non-executive. Um, and then uh, I have an interest in a few mo- uh, in, a, in, in I have an interest in a few businesses. So it's a very mm. wide, very portfolio career, you know, teaching, consulting, and working with companies.
0: And I think I read on the, your LinkedIn profile that you you have a business interests, or you were travelling to India. Uh, quite a bit. Does your and you said you travel quite a lot? Does that mean going overseas to other parts of the world or focusing on India mostly?
1: No, uh, you know, the, uh, I used to do a little bit of work in the in an India Africa Business Center at Gibbs that uh, I stopped in 2013. So since oh, then okay. I've been very in the technology space. So I do a lot of work in the US, in Europe, uh, quite a bit okay. in Asia. In terms of helping companies in these markets and governments build strategy. So, that's a lot of my work is really helping companies build
0: strategy. Okay. Um, so, congratulations on your book, Disruption Amplified, Reset, Rewire, Reimagine Everything. Could you tell us why you wrote the book, uh, the, you know, the purpose of it, and a brief overview of the book? Sure. So, I didn't go
1: out, uh, I didn't set aside 2012-20 to write a book. I think uh, a lot of my career is quite busy. Mm. Uh, my diary is really precious at times. And so on the 27th of March, when in my country, the president put us under lockdown, yeah. I realized that uh, there's so much of banana bread you can break and there's so much of uh, board games you can play. And I recall <laughs> in the first week of getting a call from one of the book publishers asking me, uh, Tracy McDonald publishers asking me whether I'd be interested in contributing to a book that she was putting together in a short space of time together with 47 other contributors. And so I laughed and I said yeah I'm more than happy to Tracy uh, and then I recall that the two of us had a conversation last year of me writing another book and so I then said to her I'd love to still write that book and I've just had nine out of 11 international trips cancelled in the last two weeks mm. which means nine weeks eat up in my diary and so uh, I'm at home I've got some time uh, and uh, uh, you know the Zoom has become the reality of where I am and so that's what what precipitated this and so then from April up until July I spent quite a bit of time thinking and reflecting and writing The way I wrote this book uh, and let me put the caveat right up front is I don't think any president any prime minister any CEO any executive any business school professor has the answers in terms of where we're going Mm. but I do think it's necessary for us to be able to take a view and so I chatted to many leaders in different sectors about how they see the now but also the next, how they see the future of their sectors. And so that's very much the way in which I wrote the book, conversations with people, quite a bit of strategic foresight. And then I basically uh, look at the macro shifts politics, economics, technology, the environment and social. And then I fuse those changes into 20 odd sectors where I look at the future of these sectors and Mm. perhaps give some scenarios in terms of where these sectors might play out.
0: Um, and your book is, is structured in such a way. I've I read it. The I read the entire thing, and it's got you know your analysis of the situation that you can see, and then you have got side notes the whole time where you give your own personal opinion on the different matters. Is that right?
1: Hundred percent. Yeah. So hundred percent. It's very much you know personal view. I I wanted to make this book as uh, engaging and as easy to read uh, as inclusive, so that you know even young people who want to read a little bit about the future of where they see things going, that it's available and accessible. And that's what I try to do throughout the book mm. uh, so that it's not just to a specific audience, but quite inclusive in nature.
0: Mm. So you start the book by talking about the macro shifts that you just spoke about now. And those are the future of globalization, the future of our social context, and the future of technology. Um, and so you're traveling a bit, as you said, you the US, Europe, et cetera. How did you see globalization looking before COVID and how do you see it looking now?
1: So I think, Lance, a very interesting thing that happened with COVID is in January and February, we saw this as a China crisis. And many Mm. of us who were in different parts of the world thought, wow, it's really interesting how this is spreading in China. And then in March, it moved from a China crisis to a global crisis. And in fact, China has come out uh, a lot better than most of the other countries in terms of numbers, in terms of cases, in terms of the deeper impact of COVID and that is a reflection of the network effects it's a reflection of the interconnectedness it's a reflection of the close relationship between countries because of mobility and so you know as you said you know uh, you know it's so easy to be able to jump on a plane remain connected online nowadays mm. with internet on board uh, and to be able to get from one city to another in 8 hours and uh, that's how the virus traveled it traveled through human connections and often we talk about network effects in terms of Uh, platform economics but network effects actually uh, can be translated in terms of the connection between individuals and societies so i think we were much more globalized as a world what i do think is going to emerge from this is uh, a different form of globalization i think Mm -hmm. we're going to see uh, more closer economies we're going to see more protectionism as economies start trying to build up we're going to see the protection of local jobs local manufacturing Number two, I think we're going to see uh, quite a bit of regional alliances taking place uh, as uh, companies have realized with COVID that deep fault lines in terms of supply chain mm. that many countries and many companies who are not closed off were unable to get a steady supply of their raw materials because companies they were procuring from uh, were closed off. And so we've seen a big trend where companies are now diversifying the supply chain and also where they're now starting to look at local supply chains. And it might come at an additional cost, but they've reconciled that it gives them more stability. And then thirdly, I think what COVID has resulted in is massive political changes. Uh, You're starting to see the fight for the accessibility of the vaccine. It was discussed at the G20 last week. Uh, You've seen most countries already having massive orders being placed. uh, And that's going to start to result in different relationships between countries. I think it's going to be interesting in terms of who has access and where that access gets given And what does it mean in terms of countries who have resources and those who don't?
0: Mm. It'll be interesting to see how the American shapes up after the elections, because obviously the current administration has been very America first, and then you're bringing the jobs back to America, which is which is what you were speaking about. And I can imagine that that would have accelerated. And now with the new administration possibly being more open, do do you think that's going to change things, or do you think countries like America and Europe will still be very they will Focus on themselves and their own supply chain management.
1: So so I think so much was resting on that election and mm. depending on whether uh, Trump won it or Biden won it, it would really determine the type of political relationships, the diplomatic relationships that come through. I mean, the Democrats have a certain posture uh, and the Republicans have a different posture. I think what is interesting is that COVID was a big factor, in my view, in terms of the outcomes of that election. It would have been interesting in the absence of COVID where that election might have went. And I I beg to think that it might have went another way. And so I do think that, uh, you know, it's been interesting in terms of Trump's pronouncements in the last six to eight months. Uh, I think we'll see uh, a more multilateral way of engaging by the U.S. Uh, The reality is that all countries have to rebuild posts. So even economies like Mauritius, which have only had under 400 cases of COVID since day one, of which the last I checked, there are only 11 active cases at the moment. Wow. So they haven't had COVID, to be honest with you. But the economy has been decimated because of the large reliance of GDP uh, in mean, tourism. And tourism, yeah. GDP, right? And tourism is not just hotels. It's the associated sectors from retail to hospitality, to food, to catering, to tourism services. And all of those have been deeply affected. So this has been a global crisis, even for countries who have not been affected by COVID from a healthcare perspective.
0: mm And so, like you said, the the middle part of your book is you look at industries and society and how they are affected by COVID. And you've got something interesting called a COVID barometer (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. at the the beginning of every chapter. Um, Which areas of society you think have been most affected of the ones that you put in the book?
1: I think the first glance is definitely the healthcare sector. I think uh, we always had a view in terms of what I would call reactive healthcare. When I Mm. get symptoms that are serious enough for me to justify going into a healthcare practitioner, then I do that. We're now seeing a bigger focus in terms of preventative healthcare, really starting to say what information, what insight do I have, can I get to be able to better position in the possibility of something happening to me or can I get to a stage where I'm a lot more armed and empowered in terms of my state of healthcare and take proactive steps? What that has meant is it's now translated to companies and countries that there's a direct relationship between those companies who've been proactive in terms of healthcare for their staff and the impact in terms of productivity, in terms of people coming on to work, in terms of uh, economic factors. And so we're mm. seeing a big push towards analytics becoming an enabler. So companies who are able to geolocate individuals in a certain square kilometer and look at the healthcare conditions, we see a big push there. So I think that's the first. I think the second is it's also opened up the fault lines in terms of uh, the massive disconnect between public and private healthcare. So in my country, South Africa, 87% of South Africans are dependent on public healthcare. Mm. uh, And COVID has opened up the way in which we've got to collaborate more. I think what you'll start to see, and many governments are moving down this direction, is a push towards more universal healthcare which is really interesting, but hard to implement as we've seen in certain countries who've tried to go down that path. So definitely healthcare. Mm -hmm. I think the second one is retail. I think retail is going to go through massive changes because we've seen increasing rates of adoption in terms of people using physical and digital channels to be able to buy. So many people have now adopted to buying digitally. It's not the end of physical retail, but we'll definitely see a decline in terms of footfall into retail environments in the traditional sense. So many retailers have now created a more frictionless digital platform because they've had to continue their business and they've had to do that. Before they were flirting, to be Mm. honest with you with digital. And now they've had to make it front and center. So retail, without a doubt, difference. I think those companies who are gonna be successful in physical retail are those who can bring the stickiness or the attractiveness of coming into store. Why do I want to come into store? Is I'll come into store if it's attractive to me, if it's magical, if it's of value, uh, and so that's what we're going to see coming through. I think the third sector that's going to be difficult and it's going to go through a tough period is property. I think we're going mm. to see, we see a number of trends. We see many yeah. people leaving centers and moving 45 minutes away from Manhattan because it's expensive to live in the central part. We're seeing an oversupply of commercial office space uh, because companies are saying, I don't need so much office space and many companies are scaling down. So property will be deeply affected. So those are three perhaps that mm. I'll spotlight that I think are going to have a deep effect.
0: It's interesting because I, I was reading all of your different, you know, industries and society areas, and I selected two other ones, actually, apart from the three yeah. that you've just mentioned, which are incredibly relevant. But the one, uh, and I would certainly not want to be in property right now, so it's a, actually a blessing that I'm not rich. Um, <laughs> but education, I, I, I saw like tertiary education and you, you know, you're very involved in tertiary education. I saw it changing before COVID even because, you know, the relevance of a degree, the relevance of an MBA and more sort of lifetime learning uh, and, you know, as you learn and you 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 relearn the whole time during your life. How do you see tertiary education going forward and, and how are you engaging with it at the moment? So
1: I think there's always been this dogma, I was often misplaced, that you study until the age of 24 and then you work for the rest of your life and you've yeah. arrived after you get a piece paper. The reality, as you rightly say, is that uh, we have to learn all the time. And part of living in this, what we've now used, to call now the VUCA world, the world of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, is that the external environment is moving at a pace, at a speed that's faster than our internal ability to respond, which means the only way to respond is to constantly learn, to learn about Mm -hmm. the world around us, to learn about our sector, to learn outside of our sector, to learn outside of a discipline. And so part of what... We see as the future of uh, tertiary education, uh, adult education, even, even primary and secondary education is for us to teach you skills that you can't digitize or automate. For us to give you a toolbox rather than to go through what used to be, I think, a very flawed model of education, this rote learning fashion, a preacher mm-hmm. standing in front giving you information. And if you can spit that back to him or her every June and November, you do well. That's not the way it should be, right? I've got to be able to get you to problem solve. I'm gonna get you to think analytically. I'm gonna get you to be able to think about how do you ideate? How do you innovate? How do you take a set of facts and leverage the people who are in your classroom? And that I'm a participant in this participant-centered learning environment where we all participate. So a lot of this is about what I call the Socratic method of learning that we learn Mm. from each other. Uh, We learn by uh, framing challenges and looking at some of the, what, what I call active learning. So that's the second. The third is I think we're in a hybrid is that COVID has taught us the ability to learn online, but there's still a magic of being together. There's a magic of being in a classroom. There's a magic of connecting at a human level. So I think we're going to get to the hybrid, uh, physical, some physical, some digital. And then the fourth is that companies and individuals have to learn the discipline and the muscle of, we don't only learn from formal institutions. We learn from being able to practice that muscle of learning that we must move sometimes from what the theorists call the performance zone into the learning zone. And that means I learn when I go shopping, I learn when I go on a holiday, I learn uh, for people whose cultures are different to mine, I learn from eating different food or talking to kids. And I think it's more about a discipline than than actually a piece of paper only.
0: Absolutely. Uh, So it needs to be very, very practical at least for me anyway. And I'm, I'm waiting for universities and business schools to come up with a subscription model because that seems like it would work okay. for me. You know, if I can pay an annual or a monthly fee and then get up, you know, educated in the, the latest developments on an almost continual basis, I wonder if it'll move in that direction at some point. Um, I mean so. Abdu- yeah. um, Abdulla, you mentioned something that I actually haven't seen in any other business books really, and that's around marriage and dating. And I, mm-hmm. I did wonder at the beginning of lockdown how are people are going to meet people again? How are people are going to like, date and get married and all those things if you can't you know, be in a, a strange person's company? It seems really, really difficult. How, how do you see marriage and dating working? Is, is it going to go back to normal, yeah. inverted commas, or is it going to be a change? It's going to be arranged marriages, Lance.
1: Uh, (laughs) I met somebody at bridge who has an interesting niece. (laughs) Uh, I think it's going to be be really difficult. I think a lot of your point is that we meet people serendipitously, right? You meet people Mm. by chance at a coffee shop or at a water slide as I met my spouse. Or you're going to meet somewhere interesting or you meet in class. And a lot of that has become suspended to an extent. Now, the second is that uh, in a masked society, it's much harder to be able to connect because much of your uh, physical appearance is not there, your ability to sense verbal signals, etc. You know, I experienced this quite often. Uh, You know, the other day I was out and uh, uh, as I was walking, somebody greeted me by name and I was too embarrassed to ask her what her name is because I had no (laughs) idea who this person was and uh, I still don't know. And so that's a, a reality. I do think that um, we will emerge out of this with a lot of what I call cognitive rewiring of human behavior. One of the consequences we see is that people have realized that very large, very elaborate weddings might not be the ideal. And so people are opting for more smaller, intimate functions. And I think that's going to be a deep effect. So one of the things, the bridal way industry alone was postulated to be an $87 billion industry by wow. 2025. So- So it's massive. Uh, Mm. And think about all of the other associated industries. I think they have to start to think about how they will emerge in a differentiated format, more small, more bespoke, more different. And then the second is we've seen the massive acceleration of companies like Tinder uh, that uh, provide digital formats for Mm. people to be able to date and meet each other. And we've seen a massive growth upspurt in terms of Tinder in the last six months.
0: Uh, A couple that we know, their daughter got married in the UK and they couldn't actually attend the wedding um so it's those kind of things that are more of a reality now than ever before you know not being able sure. to attend your daughter's wedding because you have to go and you would have to go into isolation for 14 days etc cetera, etc cetera. um uh, so you, the last thing i want to talk to you about your book is really around building new companies for a new context and you're writing your book and this is a quote from your book my fear around this reset is that we're trying to superimpose the old model of doing things onto the new world. This won't do. Instead, we need to reimagine the new world and how it looks and feels. We need to become comfortable with the shifts to appreciate how a hybrid reality might look and feel and what it means for us individually, as well as for businesses, societies, and countries. Now, obviously, that's a huge, big topic in itself. But can you give us some thinking around that? How if you were like, you know, what input do you give on a fairly regular basis to CEOs in how to redefine and reimagine their, their companies? So, so I
1: think, I think uh, to, uh, you know, this has been a massive experiment for mm. individuals and managers who never in their lives thought they'd be able to give people half a day to work over from home once a month. Uh, they've had to force themselves to get people to work for six months. It means we've had to set up the workplace to be able to allow for a better way to manage people and not the old way of managing time. Because managing time was never logical, in in a sense. You need to manage outputs of people. Mm. Um, And so one of the dogmas that's there is, and it never made sense to me, and people are coming to me now and saying, when do we get back to the new normal? Well, where we came from was never normal to start with. It's never Uh, normal for billions of people to get onto the road at the same time every morning and to sit in traffic for 90 minutes or two hours and gridlock each other and get overly frustrated and and get to work unproductive, not wanting to be there and then repeat the cycle back home so we spend you know three hours in commute every day and now we realize i can actually be so much more productive Mm. i can have a happier employee base and so one of the things practically is don't go back to a traditional time system go to a hybrid Uh, create a workplace where you've got some fluidity in terms of flexible working hours Um, the second one is Uh, start to appreciate that you can't lead a company only for the now for six months or 12 months. You've got to lead a company where we've got to think about adaptive leadership in uncertain contexts because today Mm. it's COVID. tomorrow It's something else. We live in a world of differences and change. And so, yes, this has been initially a health crisis. It's much more deeper. I think the third is uh, that I've met so many companies fascinating who've been able to proactively adapt, who've said, look, these are the set of circumstances This is the capabilities we have. The capabilities we have can't work in the current environment, but we can translate those capabilities into perhaps new opportunities. And they've been brilliant at doing that. And there's so many examples of companies who have I think been very successful in terms of proactively adapting what the theorists are now calling pivoting and pirouetting. I think it's given us a chance to say we must do that even when we don't have a crisis. And, Um, you know, I quote Milton Friedman in the book, Friedman says that uh, you know, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. And he says, when that crisis occurs, uh, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. And I think we need more ideas. We need people with different perspectives coming into the room, uh, rattling the cage, giving us a different view for us to imagine different outcomes.
0: Mm. Uh, I interviewed a lady called Deborah McKenzie for the podcast who's written a book called COVID-19 and she's a, you know, she, she uh, is, writes for new science magazine, et cetera. And she said uh, that this is definitely not the last thing. So it's going to COVID-19 is just the first of many. There are diseases around the corner. And so I guess what you, like what you're saying is really valid is that companies need to recognize that this crisis that we're going through now needs to be, it's not going to go back to normal. There's going to be more and more of these different types of things and they need to put in place a, a way and a mechanism of changing continuously, uh, uh, you know, innovating to, to cater for the various things that, that come our way. And um, so, Abdullah, you've got a company called The Strategist. Um, and if we look at your uh, website, it's Reimagining Strategy Forma- uh, Formulation and Innovation, it's, it looks a really fantastic website, and I'll have the details in the show notes for it. What kind of services do you offer at the Strategist?
1: So, two very important things, uh, Lance. The first is I help many different companies build strategy. So, in effect, help them to think about the future and to take some proactive steps in terms of what do we do about it, how do we do it, who does it, uh, and what are the ways in which we measure it. It's a really very active facilitation of strategy. Uh-huh. I speak extensively in this area. Of disruption, of reimagining, of how do you run competitive companies and individuals. So that's the second. And then the third is, I often say that if strategy is the map and the destination, then innovation is the fuel that we've got to put into the car. And sorry that I put a car analogy, I love cars. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, innovation, I help, uh, my company helps a lot of company companies build innovation, uh, you know, functions within their organizations. I think many mm-hmm. people, misunderstood innovation they think it's a cool lab with writable walls and bean bags and lego puzzle pieces it's some of that but it's a lot more deeper it's how do you create a culture where people are willing and able to be able to contribute differently and so we help many companies uh, really craft uh, innovation uh, functions within the organization so we do cool things like hackathons we do uh,
0: mm. innovation labs, uh, and so it's yeah it's i'm having a lot of fun doing what i do <laughs> and you've got a, a lot of things, it, like, like you said, innovation, executive education, keynotes, uh, and you can go and click and look at case studies, banking for the future, retail case studies, airport case studies, even, uh, etc. from your website and then cl- client referrals as well. Um, and then your website itself. So, uh, you know, d- www.avarachia.com, is that your personal one where you do speaking engagements and those type of things?
1: Yeah, so that's very much uh, my speaking work. You know, a lot of my speaking is based on my work in classrooms and based on my work in the strategy space. And so I Mm. thought it would be good to be able to share these thoughts, share these perspectives. So I speak at a lot of company events, team events, a lot of conferences. Um, Yeah, so it's been great. I think COVID has been interesting because um, I've now been able to do so much more, uh, you know, in a particular day. I'll give you one example. The other day I spoke to a firm in London. I then did a, a conference in Cape Town. And I ended with a dinner talk in Johannesburg and I could do it all in three hours from my my bedroom, from my office where I'm sitting now. Whereas previously, one out of the three would have been potentially possible. One would mean going on a plane to London and that's three days. The other would be a plane to Cape Town and the other might have been a dinner in Johannesburg, whereas now I could do all three. So that's been fascinating and really Mm -hmm. cool
0: to do. And are you seeing an upturn in the interest, or has it gone back to almost normal in a way, or is is it still quite quiet? I
1: think mean, in my in my space it's been really happy. It's been really good, and I'm really grateful. Uh, so a lot of my work has been uh, has really grown. I think I, a lot of companies need help in terms of how they re- react and respond. Mm. I think we see some sectors under pressure, uh, and uh, you know, so tourism. I think we're going to see an increase in local tourism increase in terms of people who are wanting to travel where they don't have to go through the complexity and the difficulty of long-haul airline travel with a mask for the short term. And so that means that local tourism players need to be able to say, how do we leverage and capture that value uh, when people are wanting and willing to be able to travel locally? So I think parts are under pressure. Uh, At the same time, I see massive growth in other parts of our
0: economy. People would like to contact you. How should they do it? So they can go through your website and then you're very busy and active on LinkedIn. That's that right? eh?
1: Yeah, so very active on LinkedIn, uh, uh, very active uh, in terms of uh, LinkedIn as a form of of engagement. So happy for you to connect and engage, invite me on LinkedIn, happy to uh, work with you. And then also my website has all of my contact details. Mm. So both websites should have uh, a sense of in terms of how to get in touch with me.
0: Cool. And I really enjoyed your book, Abdullah. So thank you so much for allowing me to interview and review it. And the book again is Disruption Amplified, Reset, Rewire, Reimagine Everything. And you can buy it from your websites or uh, Amazon or whatever um, channel you want. Just go out there and buy it. So Disruption Amplified, Reset, Rewire, Reimagine Everything. Thank you very much for joining me today, Abdullah. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you to
1: everybody for for listening and appreciate it.
0: And I hope you, the listener, found this as interesting and useful as I did. If you'd like to contact me, then please do. My email is Lance at Ideastorm.ca. And website is www.ideastorm.ca. So until next time, goodbye. Thank you. Absolutely. Bye. Stay safe. Stay well.